Well, good morning. Let's, uh, let's pray as uh, you continue to make your way in and find a seat. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your grace and mercy. Thank you for an opportunity this morning for us to gather together as a, uh, as a church and to uh, consider uh, what's going on in culture and to take those uh, thoughts captive and uh, to try to understand them from a biblical uh, perspective and then for an opportunity for us as we transition out of class uh, into the worship service for us to sing and to pray and to read scripture and to hear uh, scripture proclaimed over us. And so I pray that you'd bless us this morning that we might be uh, faithful and, uh, and that you might help us to uh, understand and love your truth. And so we pray these things because you're good and you do good. And so we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome uh, to Theological Equipping Class. Uh, my name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. And this semester, we are talking about social and political issues. So we're talking about a lot of controversial things this semester, not because we love controversy, but because we love the Bible and because we have a mandate from Christ to take all things captive, to take all thoughts captive, including thoughts uh, about politicians like Donald Trump and Joe Biden and topics like abortion and the environment and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and so what we're talking about today is what we're going to call victimization and outrage culture. Raise your hand if you've ever noticed that everyone seems to be really, really uh, angry all the time, right? That seems to be the case today, right? Everyone's divided. So you have angry politicians, you have angry athletes, you have angry actors and angry protesters and uh, games called Angry Birds and so forth. And so everyone seems to be offended by everyone and everything else. And so we see this phenomenon all over the place. If you've not seen it, then uh, you're not being very uh, perceptive. Uh, let me give you a few examples of this that you see in culture. You see it in the banning of particular words. For instance, uh, some city ordinances in, uh, in some contexts no longer refer to manholes. They're called maintenance holes because uh, manholes are sexist, right? Uh, so are the words humanity because it's got man in there, and history, because it's got his. Some colleges are banning words like uh, American. There are certain colleges where you're not allowed to use the word American or senior citizens, because those are also triggering. By the way, I'm, this is my trigger warning. If you are very susceptible to victimization and outrage culture, you're probably not gonna like this uh, lesson today. What else is triggering? Clapping. Some universities have banned clapping, because that can trigger anxiety. And so instead, you know what you're supposed to do? Jazz hands, seriously. That's literally a, uh, a college that is uh, doing that. Sometimes though you find yourself in a bit of a pickle where you're kind of in trouble no matter what you do, for instance, when it comes to eye contact. Should you make eye contact or not make eye contact? I was reading recently that if you avoid eye contact, that that could be a racist microaggression. But if you make eye contact with certain people, that could also be discriminatory, especially uh, for those who have autism. So it's a real catch-22. You get to choose whether or not you're going to be a racist or you're going to be a bigot against someone who has a disability, but you're going to be one or the other. So you kind of get to choose. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to find something in our culture that hasn't been called racist or sexist or homophobic or something like that. I've seen articles suggesting that bedrooms are racist, so are national parks, and milk, and Band-Aids, and orcs. You know orcs? They're the fictional characters from Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, math and science are racist. Breakfast cereal, soap, toothpaste, hiking, being nice. That's racist. Jogging, gardens, libraries, robots, grammar, punctuality, traffic signals, and on and on I could go. In fact, there's an entire Twitter account that's just dedicated to listing these things that media says are racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever it might be. And so you have all these terms that didn't exist in our culture just a few years ago, and now they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Uh, things like fat shaming or mansplaining or trigger warnings or safe spaces or toxic masculinity or doxing or cultural appropriation. And so this is all the fruit 
of what we're talking about today, which is victimization and outrage culture. So let's talk a little bit about the origin of uh, kind of why we find ourselves where we are uh, today. If you've ever watched a crime show on TV, something like uh, CSI or Law and Order or Old School Columbo or something like that, you'll hear detectives mention motive, means, and opportunity. Have you ever heard that motive means an opportunity? Did this suspect have a motive to commit murder? Did he have the means by which to do it? And then did he have the opportunity to commit the murder as well? And so uh, whenever it comes to grasping outrage culture, I'm gonna use that same sort of language of motive, means, and opportunity. And let's start with motive. When you were a kid, did you ever take all of the sodas from the soda dispenser and just mix them all together? Um, whenever I was a kid, we called that a suicide, although I don't think anyone ever died from mixing Mr. Pibb and Orange Crush or something like that, but that's what we called it. And, uh, and so when it comes to these origins of our current outrage culture and this idea of victimization, there is this philosophical suicide, like someone has uh, kind of taken their big gulp cup and they've stuck it against the, the, the little uh, soda dispenser of philosophy and they've kind of mixed all of these different things. There's a little bit, uh, kind of a perfect cocktail of, of uh, pragmatism and existentialism and particularly postmodernism and critical theory. We've talked about those uh, before, postmodernism and critical theory. We've talked about it as we discussed race, as we talked about the difference between social justice and biblical justice, and even as we talked a little bit, uh, Zach talked a couple of weeks ago about feminism and the Me Too movement. Bo- all of those things uh, kind of show the, the results of the fruit of uh, postmodernism. So what is postmodernism? Well, it's a really big philosophical movement. We don't have time to get into all the details, but let me give you kind of a a succinct summary of one of the major uh, components of postmodernism. It's a way of uh, of viewing, uh, of seeing, it's a lens by which you see all of life and truth and authority and such as necessarily creating in-groups and out-groups. You have in-groups and you have uh, out-groups. That's what postmodernism is all about. So those who are in, and then you have those who are marginalized. So postmodernism is concerned with moving those who are marginalized into the center, giving them more of a voice, giving them more authority, giving them more of a platform, and, uh, and so forth. And then as a subset of postmodernism, which is more of a general theory, we've talked about something called critical theory. That's a subset of postmodernism. And critical theory is gonna classify, it's gonna take those in and out groups and say what distinguishes the in and the out group uh, is oppression. So you have oppressors, that's the in group, and then you have the oppressed, that's the out group. And so everyone is one or the other. Everyone in this room, everyone in culture is either an oppressor or they are oppressed. You have the marginalized and you have uh, the in-group. The in-group's the oppressor, the marginalized are the oppressed. And that's a function in critical theory of your group identity. In other words, whether or not you are an oppressor or you're oppressed is based on whether or not or what groups you belong to. Uh, So it's things like your race, your gender, your sexuality, your socioeconomic class, your religion, and, uh, and so forth. If you've ever played the game Paper, Rock, Scissors, that's kind of what critical theory is like. There are these normative rules whereby you can assess who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. So men oppress women, like uh, rock beats scissors or whatever it might be. Whites uh, oppress persons of color. You have a, a white woman who will oppress a black woman. Hetero black women, though, oppress lesbian black women. Rich lesbian uh, minorities oppress poor lesbian minorities, etc. You can see how that kind of uh, uh, exists. So critical theory is kind of like this ladder that you exist on. Although here's the interesting thing, you can't move up or down. Where you are on that ladder is stuck, but there is a uh, ladder, and, uh, and so the more oppressed classes that you inhabit, the more you've historically been oppressed and thus according to critical theory, the more weight and value you should have today. In other words, the more authority you have today, the more that your voice should be listened to uh, today. So today, what we wanna do, we've talked about postmodernism, we've talked about a subset of that which is critical theory, and then we wanna kinda further uh, drill down into this and a further implication of critical theory is the idea of victimization. 
If, if I'm a member of some historically oppressed class or what I consider to be a historically oppressed class, or if I think that I've experienced any form of offense, whether I actually have or not, then I am a victim according to this theory of victimization. And thus, because I'm a victim, I'm outraged at the person or group who has victimized me. That's why you see victimization and outrage culture going together. And because I'm outraged, I must seek to oppose the one who has victimized me. And that then becomes what we call cancel culture, which you've probably uh, seen. Cancel culture is when someone is fired or someone is doxxed. If you know what doxxed means, is when your, public, uh, your private information is shared publicly. Or someone loses their TV show or whatever it might be because they break one of these somewhat arbitrary rules of outrage culture. So you take all of these philosophical assumptions, all of these movements like postmodernism and critical theory, you add a splash of a couple of generations of over, uh, overprotective parenting, so kids have never really had to deal constructively with adversity, and you have the recipe, the motive, for this victimization and outrage culture. What about the means? Well, means refer to the tools that are necessary to do something. So you have these philosophical trends that we talked about, postmodernism, critical theory, all of these sorts of things, and those have been fermenting in, uh, in, in colleges and academia for decades, but it really wasn't until recently that you really begin to see the fruit of outrage culture. It's kind of like the Reformation, right? The Reformation uh, ideas were circulating within the medieval church for, uh, for generations, long before Luther, but we don't really see the Reformation birthed as this major movement until the, uh, the 16th century because of what? because you have the, the advent of the printing press, which is, uh, enables these ideas, which again had already been incipient within the medieval Roman Catholic Church, it, it, they become, uh, all of a sudden, go viral, uh, if you will. And so, when did we begin to see outrage culture? Well, we see hints of it in the 1990s and the rise of uh, this uh, emphasis on political correctness, but then it really explodes. Outrage culture really explodes in the early 21st century. Well, why was that? Well, similar to the way that technology aided the Reformation, outrage culture is aided by the invention of some sort of technological advancement, and that is social media. So social media has fueled this outrage and uh, allowed it to go viral. By the way, Zach mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again. We might mention it some other time, but if you or your children have or use social media, you need to watch a documentary called The Social Dilemma on, uh, on Netflix. It's by some of the leading creators of social media about the way that social media affects us. And so it's a really important uh, documentary. Again, The Social Dilemma on Netflix, but the pro proliferation of postmodern thought and critical theory and all of these sorts of ideas in the, the, the media in general and then social media in particular provide the means for this movement. What about the opportunity? All right. You, you might notice that outrage culture uh, can't really grow everywhere. It, it's not really able to survive uh, in places like North Korea or in China or something like that. Even though there are, is so much more to be offended by in those contexts. It's much more offensive to live in North Korea than it is in America, and yet we're the ones who are constantly outraged and constantly offended. And so why is it that it doesn't grow in those environments? Because the environment isn't right. For outrage culture to really grow, it needs a couple of factors. We'll talk about just a couple of them uh, today. First, it tends to rely on some level of affluence. It's hard to have time to tweet your outrage if you're working 50 hours a week just to put bread on the table or something like that. This is why those who are most outraged, those who are uh, participating in the most number of protests and riots uh, and so forth, tend to be those who are, w possess what would be considered extreme wealth and extreme comfort to the rest of the world. Is it not a little strange to see those who are protesting about economic injustice doing so with a $1,000 smartphone wearing $200 shoes or whatever it might be. So outrage culture needs this level of affluence and comfort. It also needs a level of peace in which to create division. Uh, again, you have bigger fish to fry if bombs are going off overhead. You don't have time to be offended by microaggressions if you're literally running from your life. For instance, when was, in, 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 in the past generation, 
So maybe the past 30 years or so, when has our country been most unified? I would say the answer is in the, in the days immediately following 9-11, right? In that moment, uh, all of our petty squabbles are put aside in light of this greater danger uh, to us. And what we see is that outrage culture is driven by pettiness. It needs a degree of affluence and comfort and peace. So that's the opportunity. You have this motive, you have means, and then you have opportunity in, the, in light of the fact that we are one of the most affluent, most comfortable, most peaceful societies to have ever uh, existed. So you have philosophical trends, a relatively fluent and uh, comfortable society, and then the technological advancement of social media. That's the origin of victimization and outrage culture. What is victimization and uh, outrage culture? We've talked a little bit about the origins. Let's describe what we mean by those terms. Let's begin with victimization. Victimization has to do with this hypersensitive assumption that I am the victim of some sort of offense or some sort of hate crime or something like that anytime I'm offended. offended. And the underlying assumption, the underlying presupposition is that if I'm offended by you, then you're necessarily to blame. If I'm offended by you, you're necessarily to blame. I can't blame myself, why not? Because I'm a victim and that would be victim blaming. So victimization is really marked by these three different uh, characteristics, these three distinct characteristics. Uh, First, there is a hypersensitivity to offense. Historically, you probably grew up hearing things like sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me, right? What was the point of that? The point of that is not that words don't hurt, Every one of us has been hurt by words. The point wasn't that words don't hurt. The point was that I was uh, going to have the type of character where I didn't allow them to affect me like that. That I was strong enough to endure your mere words. That I wouldn't let them hurt me. That was the idea there. We had this Kelly Clarkson, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger sort of uh, mentality. But now that's not the case in culture today. Now it's what doesn't kill me makes me weaker. And that's the first attribute of victimization, this hypersensitivity to any sort of perceived offense. Second, there is this uh, presumption of victimhood. Historically, you would have to prove, if you were a victim, you would have to prove that you were actually victimized. But in the theory of victimization, that does not have to be proven. It's simply assumed on the basis of what group I belong to. Uh, on the basis of class or category. For instance, because I'm of a particular race or gender or sexuality or religion or whatever it might be, therefore I must be a victim. And if you're not a member of that class, you must be an offender. So it's assumed on the basis of class or group identity or simply on the basis of feeling. If I feel offended by you, then victimization says that you're an offender whether you've actually intended offense or not. Intent is irrelevant in this sense, which is uh, one of the marks of postmodern thought, that it doesn't matter what your actual intent is. If the other person was offended, if the other person was angry or whatever it might be, it is your fault whether you intended that or not. And the last appreciable attribute of victimization is that there is this virtue now in being a victim. In other words, there's incentive for you to be offended. Why would Jesse Smollett, why would he fake a hate crime? Because there's value now in being a victim. Why are white women pretending to be black? Why is Senator Warren pretending to be Native American? Because there's now incentive in doing so. Being a member of a historically oppressed class makes you a victim, and if you're a victim, then you're granted this greater authority and value today. Did anyone watch the, uh, uh, the Last Dance, the uh, Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls uh, documentary? As I watch clips, it makes me feel old because as I watch clips uh, from his days battling the, uh, the Pistons, I was reminded of just how physical the game used to be. So you see these clips and Jordan would drive to the hoop, an opponent would pull out a chainsaw and cut off his leg. Somebody else would take a pitchfork and jab it into him and he'd still score. He'd keep going, right? Contrast that with you watch a game today and LeBron or James Harden or something, you look at them and they they act like they're in the the, like ground zero of Hiroshima or something like that, the way that they uh, respond. They haven't actually been fouled and yet they flop. Why? Because it's incentivized. 
They're going to get the call. That's what victimization culture reminds me of. Whether you've actually been offended, whether you've actually been victimized or not, you flop um, because you know that there is an incentive in doing so. And so you have this hypersensitive, presumptive victim mentality that is rewarded in society at large. That's victimization. What is outrage culture? There's a scene in the movie, the, the Avenger, one of the Avengers movies, where Bruce Banner, who transforms into the Hulk, says, I'm always angry. And that's kind of the, the idea of culture today. And what does that have to do with victimization? Well, imagine a world where victim status is incentivized, like currency. If there is now currency, if there's now an incentive, if there's now a reward in being a victim, then I now have motivation to be offended. Remember, according to victimization, the more offended I am, the more authority I now have by virtue of my feelings and my experiences. So outrage culture is this petty, this weak-minded, this ultimately unproductive tendency to seek out opportunities to be offended and then to assume the worst of attentions in others and kind of default into this emotionally driven hatred of the other. And this has been normalized in our culture in fact, it's even been elevated in our culture in which every conversation now uh, is kind of infused with gasoline, just ready to erupt. So you see outrage culture in social media, you see it in politics, you see it in movies and television shows, you, you see it in sports, you see it on college campuses with safe spaces and trigger warnings. You see it even in churches where people are so easily offended that they gossip or slander, or they just leave the church, but at no point do they have reasonable discussion about that events and seek clarity. At no point do they think maybe they're actually the problem, maybe they're not the victim, maybe their, their offense is actually offensive. So you have this outrage culture that has permeated nearly every aspect of American society. If everything that I'm saying is foreign to you, if you don't recognize this in our culture, you must have just awakened from a, co a coma if so, welcome to 2020, you're going to hate it, right? This is the worst year ever. So that's a bit on where it comes from and what it is. Let's talk about some of the distinguishing marks and some of the problems from a biblical perspective with victimization and outrage culture. I have seven of these. Uh, number one, outrage culture elevates emotion over reason. Historically, we would say that your feelings always should be conformed to the facts. If I feel like you offended me. If I feel like you stole something from me and later found out that you did not in fact steal something from me, then I am obligated not only to reconcile with you, but also to repent of my feelings. But in outrage culture, feelings are more important than facts. So for example, when there is a police shooting, there are literally protests before any facts are known, before any are known whatsoever. And even after those facts actually exonerate the police, the outrage doesn't die out. There's no repentance. Or if a man is accused of sexual assault, he's presumed guilty before facts are known. Or remember the case of Nick Sandman, the, the, the student who, uh, who received death threats for mocking a Native American man. At least that was the narrative of the media. And even uh, many evangelical leaders rushed to judgment and publicly castigated this kid, though later evidence showed that he was a victim. By the way, very few of those evangelical leaders later came back and publicly repented of their rush to judgment. They're too busy being outraged now by new stuff. Or a couple of weeks ago, this just happened, a USC professor was suspended. Why was he suspended? Because he used a Chinese word that kind of sounds like an English racial slur. Did he use a racial slur? No, he did not use a racial slur. He used a totally appropriate Chinese word that kind of sounds like an inappropriate English word and he was suspended because people were offended by that. So you see this, this idea that facts don't fit the narrative and so what happens? The facts are just summarily dismissed and ignored. This, by the way, is again an outworking of postmodern theory in which things like data or data and statistics and empiricism and so forth are considered to be tools of oppression that cannot be trusted. So the effect in outrage culture is that things like conversation and discourse and dialogue, uh, which have been foundations of Western civilization's concept of truth, things like that are killed. Outrage culture is the weaponization of emotion at the expense of truth and justice.
That's what, that's what outrage culture is. The weaponization of emotion at the expense of truth and justice. This is why if someone makes an argument that runs counter to some sort of cultural narrative, he always gets flooded with negative comments, but no one will actually point out the actual logical deficiencies in his argument. No one will agree to have a debate. As a, a social justice activist uh, tweeted recently about why she refuses to debate or discuss her views with those who disagree, she wrote this, this is a quote, because debate is an imperialist, capitalist, white supremacist, cis, heteropatriarchal technique that transform a potential exchange of knowledge into a tool of exclusion and oppression. And with that, I think we have a social justice bingo, right? She used every word that you possibly could. If you can work imperialist, capitalist, white supremacist, and cis heteropatriarchal into one tweet, that's, that's pretty good. Unfortunately, we see this uh, resistance to debate and discussion and discourse even among Christians who really should know better. So someone will write a long blog or post a, 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 a lesson or a sermon or a podcast with tons of reasons to support their position, whatever that position uh, is, and someone will just respond online with something that says, this is horrible or this is wrong without offering any sort of counter evidence whatsoever, as if just simply saying this is wrong wins the argument. I took a high school debate class, right? If only I would have known that. I didn't have to prepare. I didn't have to have arguments. I just simply said, excuse me, you're wrong. I'm national champ, right? What we've lost the ability and art to argue. We've lost even the, the idea that arguing is a good thing. Historically, arguing was a good thing. Not fighting, but arguing. We actually need more arguing in this classic sense. We need to reassert uh, the primacy of facts over feelings. Second, outrage culture assumes that one side is the victim before examining the merits of the case. We've talked about this before. God is always on the side of the victim. If someone is actually oppressed, if someone is actually abused, if someone is actually violated or whatever it might be, that is sinful and God hates it. God sides with the victim, but we must determine the victim on the basis of the Bible and not some philosophical presupposition of group identity or feelings or assumptions or whatever it might be. Again, this is part of the problem with outrage culture. What happens when there is a police shooting or an accusation of sexual assault? There is always this presumption of guilt and a presumption of who is the victim. Notice even the way that we talk about these things in the media so-and-so was a victim of a police shooting. So-and-so was a victim of a sexual assault. We're begging the question. We're assuming what we should be proving. We have to prove that that person was actually a victim. We don't know who the victim is until we consider the evidence. We should absolutely care about and support the victim of any injustice. If a person is unjustly shot by a police officer, that person is a victim. But if someone attacks a police officer and that officer justifiably shoots that person, the officer is the victim. If a man assaults a woman, she is a victim. But if a woman falsely accuses a man, he is the victim. Here's the irony. We say in our culture that victim blaming is this like worse sin, it's taboo, and yet our society does just that because they presume who the victim is. According to our new cultural norms, anyone who is a member of some perceived historically oppressed class should always be considered the victim today. This is why there are actual arguments, legitimate arguments in defense of looting and rioting today. Those aren't actually crimes to outrage culture because those who are doing it are victims and thus by this new definition of victimhood, they cannot be perpetrators of injustice. By its very definition, they can't. The same way that we talked about when we talked about race, that someone who is a minority today cannot be guilty of racism because we've redefined the meaning of the word racism. And so someone today who loots or someone who riots, they're simply getting what was unjustly kept from them in the first place. By the way, someone on Twitter pointed out the irony that a, there's a recent book that justifies uh, looting and stealing. And they said, this is really ironic that that book has a copyright, right? That's inconsistent. Uh, but scripture talks about this danger of presumption in identifying victims quite a bit. For example, who was the actual victim in the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Well, our culture would say Potiphar's wife. And yet the Bible is uh, uh, explicitly clear. She is not. She is the aggressor. 
What about Jezebel? Jezebel? Was she a victim of Elijah's prophetic patriarchy? Or it's become cool to accuse David of sexually assaulting Bathsheba, even though the text doesn't actually say that? Jews and Christians haven't assumed that for thousands of years, but because she's a woman and he's a man and he's also king, they assume she must have been the victim. And maybe she was. Maybe that's how we're supposed to read the text. But if so, you have to make some sort of argument from the text rather than reading our cultural presuppositions into the text. As we've mentioned many times before, the Bible says quite a bit regarding distinguishing guilt from innocence and the importance of truth and due process. Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Our culture is willing for a few innocent people to pay in order to make sure that there is always going to be some sort of punishment. The Bible says that is wicked. Proverbs 18, 5, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. 18.13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So the Bible assumes a deliberate and comprehensive search for truth before assigning blame. Outrage culture rushes to judgment and assumes victimhood status because of these philosophical presuppositions and feelings rather than facts, which are inconvenient tools of oppression. Number three, outrage culture is inconsistent and Hypocritical. By this, I mean a couple of different things. Uh, It's inconsistent and hypocritical, both vertically and also horizontally. I'll do those in reverse order. What do I mean by it's inconsistent horizontally? Well, I mean it's inconsistent depending on which side of the political and social spectrum you're on. So 100 people who are meeting for church during the pandemic, that's dangerous, that's outrageous. But thousands of people assembling for a protest, that's not that's okay. Or Trump's uh, immorality is outrageous, but then we kind of tolerate MLKs or JFKs or whatever it might be, or vice versa. You might be on the other end of the spectrum. Or when there are reports that Brett Kavanaugh abused someone, those must be believed without reservation. But when there are similar accusations against a Democratic candidate, those are not. Or if someone on the more politically right were to appear in what's called blackface, they would be forever stigmatized. But when it's someone on the left, like Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon or the governor of Virginia, they get a slap on the wrist. By the way, I'm not saying that this is only an issue uh, with the political and social left, although I do think it's much more pronounced uh, there. But that's the horizontal inconsistency that that you see. We tend to give a pass to those who we like or those who are like us, whatever it might be. What about vertical inconsistency? I mean by that, never before have so many people been so triggered by so little while overlooking so much. There's a time when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and he accuses them of swallowing camels and straining out gnats. He talks about the fact that they are so meticulous in their tithing of, uh, of things like mint or dill, but they neglect the weightier matters of mercy and that's what this culture reminds me of. Outrage culture majors in the minor and completely dismisses the majors. So outrage culture is outrage when children are temporarily separated from their parents at the borders or when a woman can't get free abortive birth control paid for by the government, but then they tolerate and even celebrate the horrific murder of infants. We're outraged when police shoot someone, but we're relatively silent when 100 times as many are murdered by non-police. We're triggered by microaggressions like pronouns and hair products, but we tolerate macroaggressions like child pornography or human rights violations in China or whatever it might be. Speech is violence. It cannot be tolerated, but burning down cities, ruining lives, that's not violence, that's okay. Speaking of speech as violence, uh, in a survey a couple of years ago, about 30% of all college students agreed that it's perfectly justified to use physical violence to suppress speech you find uncomfortable or offensive. And by the way, that number is going up. 30% a couple of years ago and it is continually moving up. If you wanna understand that whole speech is violence thing, here it is in a syllogism form. Premise one, words cause stress. 
right? Is that true? Words cause stress? Yes, we all know that's true. If someone yells bomb on a plane, or if someone yells fire in a theater, or a teacher says pop quiz, right? That creates stress. So we know words have a tendency to cause stress. Premise two, stress causes harm. Again, is that true? Yes, too much stress can cause all kinds of health issues like heart attacks and strokes and so forth. Premise three, if someone attempts to harm me, I have a right to self-defense. Is that true? That's also true uh, legally. So put all this together and you have a defense of kicking or punching or shooting someone because of their speech. Words cause stress, stress causes harm. I have a right to defend myself when someone tries to harm me. There you go. And it sounds really good until we realize that stress means something different in each premise. It's called an equivocation. Here's a a counter argument. Here's an experiment to see if the, uh, the argument is actually sound. Take out the word words, words cause stress. Take out the word words and instead plug in the word in-laws, right? In-laws cause stress. Anyone agree with that? Sometimes they can, right? In-laws cause stress. Stress causes harm. It's okay to defend myself against harm. Therefore, I can kill my in-laws, right? Does that sound? Some of you are like, eh, maybe. (laughs) Of course not. Here's the problem. When we're outraged at everything, it relativizes what's most important. It's kind of like if you highlight every single line on every single page in a book, that's not helpful. But because people are outraged at everything, legitimate outrage is diluted. And speaking of the legitimate outrage, outrage culture is outraged at the wrong things. That's the fourth point here. It's kind of related to the previous point uh, regarding vertical inconsistency, but it isn't only that uh, outrage is out of proportion being uh, triggered by microaggressions to the neglect of macroaggressions, but that culture is just simply outraged by the wrong things. In other words, there's this profound difference between righteous outrage and unrighteous outrage. Kind of like the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. To be outraged at the right things is right. To be outraged at the wrong things is wrong. Or let me say it like this. We offend God when we love what God hates or we hate what, God's lo- what God loves. We offend God when we are offended by the wrong things. Make no mistake, we should be offended by Justice, but as we spent an entire week discussing uh, a few weeks ago, social justice isn't always biblical justice. In fact, much of what is called social justice is actually injustice. So we should be outraged. We should be offended by things, but only those things that are actually outrageous and actually offensive from a biblical perspective. So let me just give you a few examples of things that offend God that modern culture tolerates or even celebrates. Abortion, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Sexual morality, including homosexuality and transgenderism, we'll talk about that as well. Covetousness, most of the arguments about income inequality and so forth are actually about covetousness. Uh, Injustice, disguised as justice, God hates that. Heresy, partiality on the basis of race, gender, or socioeconomic class. In other words, the entire theory of critical theory or postmodernism. Divorce for unbiblical grounds and so forth. Not sure if you realize this, but right now, there is an actual debate going on in our culture as to whether or not pedophilia is okay. So these are things that our culture celebrates that God hates. What about things that God loves that our culture hates? Well, actual justice. Forgiveness. For example, when the brother of Botham, John, uh, forgave uh, police officer Amber Geiger for killing her brother, what was the reaction on social media? People were angry. How dare you forgive this oppressor? Reconciliation is another thing that God loves that our culture hates. For example, many of the leading voices of what's called anti-racism say that there can never, absolutely never be true reconciliation between whites and persons of color. Uh, Our culture hates due process and God loves it. Our culture hates love for your enemies. Our culture hates truth and impartiality and so forth. So outrage culture celebrates what offends God and is offended by what God celebrates. Number five, outrage culture diagnoses that something is wrong, but not what is wrong. You know the signs at the airport that say, if you see something, say something? If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Is that true? If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. As if your feelings are properly calibrated? Of course not. In fact, I read an article the other day that said that the overwhelming majority of tips that have ever been reported in airports are actually false alarms. Here's my point, that outrage, that offense, anger, perception of danger, 
All of those things just tell me that I'm mad. They tell me something about myself. They don't actually say what's going on outside of me. Right? They, they don't tell me why I'm mad or why I'm scared or uh, whether I should be or what to do about it. And that's the problem with feelings. Feelings are really good at telling me that something is wrong, but it's not very good at telling me what that thing is. If I feel hot, maybe it's because it's objectively too hot in this room. Or maybe it's because I have a fever. And we should be angry at things like police shootings. But should our anger be directed toward the police or the person who was shot? Or to neither in the case of some sort of unfortunate accident. We should be angry about the conditions of inner cities, but what's the cause of those conditions? What's the cause of income disparity? Is it white supremacy? Is it systemic injustice? Or is it crime and sexual morality and abortion and fatherlessness and the welfare state and so forth? We should be angry at forest fires that are devastating the West Coast, but are those mainly a result of man-made climate change or due to foolish environmental policy? Or when someone rebukes me for some sin and I'm offended and I'm angry, should my anger be uh, directed at that other person for rebuking me or should it be directed inwardly at myself and my sin? Outrage culture can't tell me that. And because it can't diagnose the problem, it can't diagnose the cure. In fact, it intentionally wants to avoid it. One of the most common marks of this way of thinking and responding to adversity and offense is simply shut down conversation. And yet historically in Western civilization, uh, communication and discourse are the primary tools for dismantling injustice and oppression and so forth. But outrage culture shuts those down. Why? Because it doesn't really want to solve the problem. The goal is to constantly move the goalposts. For instance, if I'm in an oppressed class and suddenly if I were to be able to come up with the perfect solution for oppression, what happens? Well, I lose my victim status. And thus I lose my platform and authority. So Ibram X. Uh, Kendi, uh, a leading voice for anti-racism, tweeted out recently that the work will never be over, which is good for him because then he'd be out of a job, right? It's like a weapons dealer. He has a vested interest in avoiding peace. So those who subscribe to this way of thinking have a vested interest in remaining victims because in being victims, they are ironically most empowered This is one of the ironies of the phrase speaking truth to power, which is a a rallying cry of postmodernism and outrage culture. Ironically, not only are they not speaking truth, but they're already in power in many ways. Think of who today is promoting the presuppositions of outrage culture. Journalists, news organizations, multi-billion dollar social media companies, vast numbers of professional athletes, in fact, the entire NBA and NFL, the overwhelming majority of celebrity actors and actresses, a large number of politicians, etc. In other words, the powerful. Outrage culture doesn't speak truth to power. It bullies people with falsehood because it already is powerful. Number six. Is this fun? Just, you're just getting angry? That's my goal. My goal is to make you angry, and then Zach's going to preach out of Psalm 88 and make you sad. So <laughs> welcome to Parkway. Number six, outrage culture neglects biblical commands regarding how to deal with offenses. What does our culture say to do when you're offended? Assume you're the victim and then do whatever you can to justify yourself and then to condemn whatever or whomever offended you. In other words, you instantly flame that uh, or fan that flame of offense. You tweet it out, you protest, you riot, you write an immediate bad Yelp or Google review or whatever it might be. Culture says to find offense to assume the offense is justified and then to attack. What does scripture say? Well, first, it says that we always have to see if the offense is deserved. If I sin and you rebuke me, I'm offended, but I deserved it. How do we know if it's deserved? By examining the facts. Again, this is a huge problem with postmodernism and critical theory where facts are oppressive tools. Christians should never be afraid of facts. Never be afraid of the, tr- the truth. In fact, we're commanded by scripture in multiple places to seek out the truth. So I was offended. I was outraged. But should I have been? We need to turn that lens on ourselves. Was it actually my fault? Did the other actually do anything wrong? Am I actually to blame? If so, I should repent of being offended. I wanna pause there because I hardly ever see this. If I get mad at you for something that is not actually your fault, I not only have a responsibility to let go of that offense, but now I owe you an apology for being offended by you. And I mean the word owe, I've sinned against you. But even if the the outrage is not deserved, I still don't go straight to war, log into Twitter to tweet my rage, 
Why not? Because I have an opportunity to overlook the offense. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Our culture looks for things to be offended by. It goes out of its way to be offended. Biblically, we should go out of our way to overlook offenses. We should make every effort to overlook, to neglect offenses. In other words, our outrage is often directly opposed to opportunities to show grace and forgiveness and mercy and love. For many offenses, the biblical command is to simply overlook and forgive them and move on. But let's say that it's not the type of offense that you can overlook. Should you therefore attack? Should you gossip or slander or secretly plot the downfall of your offender? No, even then you're commanded to go in private, like it says in Matthew 18 and other places in scripture, to seek clarity and reconciliation. So outrage culture completely subverts this biblical process, goes on the offensive immediately after being offended without even considering whether or not it's justified or not. And then last thing to say here, outrage culture cannot be pacified. We've talked about that a little bit uh, in saying that it's insatiable. That's a design feature, by the way. It's intentional. If it could be satisfied, I would no longer be a victim and then I would lose my identity, lose my authority. As Bernie Sanders says, never lose your outrage. But I mean by this more than that it's just insatiable. I mean that it can't be bartered with. This is why you see the left eating the left. You see the woke eating the woke. So J.K. Rowling, author of, uh, author of uh, Harry Potter, who by the way supports feminism and homosexuality and other progressive issues. She took a stand against some of the assumptions of transgenderism recently. For the record, she supports transgenderism. She simply pointed out that it's absurd and actually demeaning to women to suggest that biological uh, sex is just a social construct, that it isn't real. What was the result of that bit of common sense? She was flooded with hate. She's being canceled by the very culture that she supports. In other words, you can't outwoke the woke. There is always someone who is more woke than you, which is why it astounds me to see so many evangelical leaders playing this game as if you, as if you can just agree to play the game and then expect the rules to change when it comes to you. Maybe if I just agree with the premises of anti-racism, the culture will listen to me. The problem with that is that most of the voices for anti-racism are not saying that whites and people of color should be equal. That's what was being said in the civil rights movement. That is what Christians should support. That is not what's being said by conversations on race uh, today. They are literally saying that whites should be oppressed and that whites should even be destroyed. Maybe if I just tone it down on homosexuality, then people won't think I'm homophobic. The problem is that outrage culture thinks anything at all short of unqualified acceptance is homophobic. Maybe if I just recognize some of the merits of modern feminism, then I won't seem sexist. But if you think that there is any distinction whatsoever between male and female, then you're a sexist, according to outrage culture. Maybe if I just change my tone, then people will see that I'm not actually a bigot, but it isn't tone that culture hates. Go read social media. Tone isn't the problem. Truth is, think about it like this. If someone told you they were gonna burn down your house, and kill your family? Do you care if they say sir or ma'am or please and thank you? Of course not. The problem isn't the way that they say it, it's what they're saying. So in the same way, the, the problem with culture today is not that they just hate the way that Christians talk or they hate the way that Christians act or whatever. It hates Christianity. It hates truth. It hates what we love, what we think, what we desire. This has been the case always. Culture has always been opposed to some degree uh, to the gospel. Uh, Herman Bovink said, for the gospel is not flattering to human beings. It is directly opposed to their thoughts and wishes and as divine truth gives the lie to their falsehood. So why is outrage culture opposed to Christianity? Because outrage culture is what happens when you simply unleash the flesh. All of the attributes of outrage culture, unrighteous anger, pride, covetousness, fear, lust, envy and so forth. All of that is just sin. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, uh, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Your flesh loves division. 
Your flesh loves offense. It loves outrage. This is the theological reason why there is no solution. The flesh doesn't want a solution. The flesh wants sin. That's all it ever wants. That's it. It can't be bartered with. It can't be satisfied. It can't be pacified. It can only be mortified. Your flesh never gets better. It just dies. So this is a rather depressing lesson. All right, what's our hope? What's the gospel? The power of God to change the hearts of the elect. Not only those who are lost, yes and amen, we wanna change their hearts as well, but also to disciple those who are believers who have unfortunately been taken captive by some of these deceptive philosophical trends. So if I've done my job correctly this morning, you should be a bit angry, all right? Either angry at me because you actually disagree with me and you actually agree more with some of these presuppositions, in which case you have a biblical responsibility to come and chat with me, or you're angry, indeed outraged, at the excesses and assumptions of outrage culture. So I would thought it would be most appropriate to end by reminding us of some of what Scripture says regarding our anger and regarding our offense. For the sake of time, I won't read all the passages I've included in your notes, but just a few, and then I'll pray, and Jared will come up with some questions. James 1, 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, be angry, that's a command of scripture, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And last of all, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6, you see all of the, the opposite of the attributes of outrage culture and victimization here. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Let's pray and then we'll do some questions. Father, I pray um, that you would uh, cultivate in our hearts as a, a people who uh, represent the body and bride of your son, that we would uh, have hearts that look like these passages that we just read, that we would indeed be angry at things that you're angry about, but that we would also be the kind of people who would turn the other cheek and the kind of, uh, of people who would be slow to anger and the kind of people who would be gracious and loving and kind and so forth. And then I just pray for mercy, for mercy as our society moves further and further away from this biblical ethic, Lord, that you would help us to be salt and light. And, uh, and so we love you. We're grateful that even as, uh, as culture does seem to drift and capitulate and to move further and further, that yet you are in the heavens and you do all that you please. And so you're not disturbed. You're not confused. You're not uh, in the slightest thwarted in your designs. Uh, and one day you will make all things new. And so we pray with hope and expectation in Christ's name.